Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is a special edition of Primetime Politics, the Vote 2019 edition, day eight of the election campaign, and a major controversy for the Liberal leader that we are following tonight. Here's what it's all about. Justin Trudeau being attacked this evening for wearing brown face makeup at a party in 2001 at a private school where he was a teacher. This story broken this evening by Time magazine out of the United States uh, with this uh, photograph confirmed by the Prime Minister's office. This is Justin Trudeau in uh, 2001 at an Arabian Nights themed gala at the school where he was a teacher. He was 29 years old at the time. His office says he was dressed as a character from Aladdin. We are going to have reaction. Uh, we're going to hear from the Prime Minister in just a moment. We also have reaction from an emotional NDP leader coming up, uh, reaction from the Conservative leader as well, conversations with journalists about what all of this means. But let's start with the Prime Minister in Halifax this evening on the tarmac as he uh, got set to leave Halifax to head to Winnipeg for another campaign stop tomorrow. He met with reporters and made a statement about his actions and answered questions about this breaking story. In 2001, uh, when I was a teacher out in Vancouver, I attended an end-of-year gala where the theme was Arabian Nights. And I uh, dressed up in an Aladdin costume and put makeup on. I shouldn't have done that. I should have known better, but I didn't. And I'm really sorry. In 2001, I taught at Vancouver. Et dans le uh, gala de fin d'année de l'école, uh, sous un thème uh, Mille et une nuits, uh, je me suis uh, uh, déguisé en costume d'Aladin, uh, y compris avec du maquillage. J'aurais pas dû le faire. Uh, j'aurais dû savoir que j'aurais pas dû le faire. Um, et je le regrette profondément. C'était une erreur. C'était quelque chose que j'aurais pas dû faire. J'aurais dû le savoir que j'aurais pas dû le faire et je le regrette profondément. Oui, je m'excuse. Oui, je m'excuse profondément. Je me suis déçu moi-même et je suis je suis vraiment désolé. I think uh, there are people who've made mistakes in uh, in this life, and you make decisions based on what they actually uh, do, what they did, uh, and on a case-by-case -case basis. I think uh, I uh, deeply regret that we that I did that. Uh, I should have known better, uh, but I didn't. And I didn't. This is this is How do you feel about this coming out right now in the campaign? Uh, obviously, I, I regret uh, that I did it. Uh, it's not about timing. It's about having done something that I shouldn't have done, and I'm really sorry I did. Is that the only time in your life you've ever done something like that? Uh, when I was in high school, I uh, dressed up at a uh, talent show uh, and sang Dale. 
Au secondaire, euh, je me suis euh, déguisé avec du maquillage et j'ai chanté euh, Deo. Si quelqu'un au Parti conservateur avait fait ça, vous lui demanderiez aujourd'hui de démissionner. Je, je regarderais leur comportement et je regarderais euh, ce qu'ils ont fait. C'est sûr que euh, moi, je suis quelqu'un qui a euh, œuvré toute ma vie pour contrer l'intolérance et la discrimination. J'aurais dû savoir, euh, même à cet âge-là, que j'aurais pas dû faire ça. Euh, mais euh, je l'ai fait et je m'en excuse profondément. Monsieur Trudeau, qu'est-ce que vous dites à des Canadiens I regret it deeply. I am deeply sorry that I did that. I should have known better, uh, but I didn't, and I did that, and Why? I shouldn't have done that. Why is this coming out now? Uh, listen, it was something that I, I shouldn't have done many years ago, uh, and I recognize that I shouldn't have done it. You, you, you resign. Will you resign? Saying. Many in the United States, when they've been discovered with these sorts of things, they are asked to resign. Have you given thought to resign? Uh, I take responsibility for my uh, decision to do that. I shouldn't have done it. I should have known better. Uh, it was something that uh, I didn't think was racist at the time, but now I recognize um, it was something racist to do, and I am deeply sorry. If you have any words that, to say to some of your staff who may find this offensive. I have made uh, a number of calls uh, to uh, friends and colleagues tonight, and I will have many more colleagues, uh, many more calls to make. The conservatives say you're not as advertised. How can you look at Canadians and tell them that's not true? Uh, I have uh, worked all my life to try and uh, create opportunities for people to fight against racism and intolerance, uh, and I can just uh, stand here and say that I made a, a mistake uh, when I was younger and I wish I hadn't. I should have known better then, uh, but I didn't and I did it and I am deeply sorry for it. If one of your candidates had come out with one of these photos during the campaign, would an apology have been enough for you to allow them to stay? Uh, we would make that decision on a case-by-case -case basis and look at all the factors involved, uh, but I can't answer a hypothetical on Why that. Why should you be allowed to stay? Um, I'm going to be uh, asking Canadians to forgive me for what I did. I shouldn't have done that. I take responsibility for it. It was a dumb thing to do. I'm disappointed in myself. I'm pissed off at myself for having done it. I wish I hadn't done it, but I did it. And I apologize for it. Your team know about this? for you to apologize for this. You've known that this happened a long time ago. I've been, uh, uh, I've been forthright uh, when this has come forward that it is something that, uh, that I regret deeply having done. Your research team has been hammering the Conservatives on social media. We've been told privately there's an arsenal of things still to come for inappropriate social media behavior in the past. Does all of that go, how could you credibly do something like that now in the middle of a campaign after what we've all seen tonight? Uh, I've taken responsibility for it, for having made a real mistake in the past. I, have, I stand here you know, before Canadians, as I will throughout this campaign, and talk about the work we have to do to uh, make a better country together. And I'm going to continue to stay focused on that and continue to work to fight intolerance and discrimination, uh, even though, uh, obviously, I made a mistake in the past. Are you Are you team team know about this? Il y a 20 ans, j'ai pris une décision que j'aurais pas dû prendre et je le regrette profondément. Uh, j'ai pris cette décision et j'en prends la responsabilité. What does this mean for your campaign? Uh, 
This means uh, uh, that I'm going to continue to work very hard to demonstrate to Canadians that uh, I'm always going to try and uh, take responsibility for my mistakes, but always work towards uh, a better future for all Canadians. That's, I have uh, a big day in Winnipeg tomorrow where I'm going to be meeting with Canadians. We're going to continue getting out there across the country and talking about uh, the kind of future we all need to roll up our sleeves and build. What is the way you feel about other candidates who may have made mistakes on social media or other things in the past? Maybe you should have given them a little more latitude when you knew that this was something I think this is something that, like everything, that you have to evaluate on a case-by-case -case basis. This is something that I, I take seriously and I take responsibility for. I'm pissed off at myself, obviously. I'm disappointed in myself and uh, I'm apologizing to Canadians. What does taking responsibility mean? What is the consequence for you? For, for a, a lot of your candidates, this would be at least calls for resignation. This would be calls for important conversations with all those candidates and uh, real staking, taking stock in the path forward. And I'm having conversations with, with uh, my colleagues, with fellow candidates, and I'm going to be continuing to having conversations uh, with Canadians about this and about many other things that we're uh, hoping to work together on positively. You said you've had conversations with individuals probably over the last hour. In talking to racialized members of your cabinet and your caucus, what have they said to you? Are they disappointed? Um, I, well, I, I've said to them uh, what I'm saying here. How uh, what did I, they I, I've said to them what I've, I'm saying here. How I take responsibility for it. How I did something that I really shouldn't have done, and I'm disappointed and pissed off at myself. Uh, what they said, uh, quite frankly, I'm, I am touched by having as thoughtful a team around me as I have. When did your team know about this? Uh, I've been uh, talking to candidates to see. I've been talking to my fellow candidates tonight. Did you know, when did your team know? I found out. I found out today that it was going to break tonight. On prend des évaluations basées sur euh, au cas par cas et, ça, et dans cette situation, dans cette situation, en, en même temps que j'ai, euh, je, je reconnais ce que j'ai fait et que je regrette ce que j'ai fait, euh, on a aussi agi en tant que gouvernement qui euh, a lutté contre l'intolérance, a lutté contre le racisme. Euh, on a reconnu euh, le travail qu'il faut faire avec les différentes communautés euh, pour contrer cette intolérance. Et, et je considère que euh, j'ai été euh, et je suis un allié à ces communautés-là. Et c'est pour ça que je suis tellement déçu de moi-même. Et je sais qu'il va y avoir de la déception dans cette communauté-là. Ça veut dire qu'on a encore du travail à faire. We've had uh, conversations about this over the past uh, over the past while, but the reality is uh, that we are going to continue to to focus on fighting discrimination you and racism tell, as a person. Talked about it recently, yes. The woman in the photograph, you touched her in a very familiar way, um, depending on your relationship with her. Who was she and what she was, was that? a close friend. Was this photo racist in your opinion? Yes. Yes, it was. I didn't consider it uh, a racist action at the time, but now we know better. And this was something that was unacceptable and yes, racist. Within the last year, the governor of Virginia was found to have been pictures in blackface. Did you not think at that time? Maybe I should say something to my friends and colleagues about something I did. We've seen other celebrities, comedians also confront this sort of behavior. Did you think at that time, geez, I'm a politician and I've done that. Maybe I should say something. 
this is uh, part of the reflections we all have to have on how uh, we judge the mistakes that we've made in the past, how we take responsibility for them, and mostly how we keep moving forward as a society, recognizing that we do need to do more uh, to fight uh, anti-black racism, systemic discrimination, uh, unconscious bias, all these things that uh, are present that I'm certainly not immune from. I think there's a, certainly a, a significant reflection that, that I've had uh, over the past while on this, and uh, if it leads other people to have reflections, then that's a good thing, but this is very much about me taking responsibility for an action I really shouldn't have Did taken. Did you understand why it's racist to wear blackface? Could you explain that? Why it's uh, racist? I think it's, it's well known that communities uh, and people who live with intersectionalities and face uh, discrimination, uh, the likes of which I have uh, never uh, personally had to experience, uh, is, uh, is a significant thing that is very hurtful, and that's why I am so deeply disappointed in myself. Why didn't you tell people sooner? This is, uh, this is a, a time where we're focused on moving forward as a, as a country and we're continuing to fight. Why didn't we tell people sooner? I'm talking about it now. Ça fait dix ans que je suis en politique. Ça, ça fait dix ans que je travaille à tous les jours pour créer un meilleur avenir pour tout le monde. Ça continue d'être euh, mon, mon emphase et, et mon choix. Ça fait dix ans que vous Effectivement. I'm going to have a conversation with them tomorrow morning before they go to school about taking responsibility uh, for mistakes you make, about uh, living up every day to try and be a better person and recognizing uh, that when you make mistakes you have to take responsibility for it, you have to own up for it, and you have to promise to do better. That's what I expect of my kids, that's how I'm going to be raising them, and that's certainly the conversation that I'm going to be having with them tomorrow. Why would you launch the attacks you did on the Conservatives knowing you had this in your background? This seems like a terrible mistake knowing you've done something like I think uh, the fact is that I uh, look forward to having conversations about how we move forward as a society, how we move forward as individuals. Uh, if uh, everyone who is going to be uh, standing for office uh, needs to demonstrate that they've been perfect every step of their lives, um, there's going to be a, a shortage of people running for office. I think what is important is uh, that, yes, people get challenged on mistakes they've made in the past, that they recognize those mistakes, and they pledge to do better. That's what we expect of people. I certainly uh, uh, accept that people can make choices about who they choose to run with and who they choose to have as candidates. Mr. Trudeau, you've mentioned the incident in high school and we've just found out about the photo tonight. Do you want to tell Canadians about any other instances where you were concerned that you were racist? I think uh, I think it, it's it's been plenty. Uh, the fact of the matter is that I've I've always uh, and you'll know this been uh, more enthusiastic uh, about costumes uh, than uh, is somehow uh, is sometimes appropriate. Uh, but uh, uh, these are the situations that uh, that uh, I regret deeply. Is it the only two, or there are more? These are the situations I regret deeply. Mr. Trudeau, when you go to sleep tonight, or when you're sleeping or going to bed, and you're reflecting on this day. What are you going to be I'm going to be thinking about how much harder I'm going to have to continue to work to demonstrate to Canadians that I'm focused on building uh, a better world with less discrimination, less intolerance, uh, and uh, less racism, uh, and that uh, this 
choice that I made many years ago, which was the wrong choice, and one that I regret deeply, uh, I need to, uh, I am owning up to, uh, and going to focus on moving forward. Merci tout le monde. Merci tout le monde. Bonsoir. Being healthier, I've enjoyed watching along with me. Uh, Justin Trudeau saying, uh, should have known better, uh, asking for forgiveness from Canadians, didn't think it was racist at the time, but now realize it was. His words, pissed off at himself uh, for what he's done, and also saying uh, there's at least one other incident uh, in high school where he uh, dressed in makeup uh, to sing the song Deo. Uh, so this is a breaking, developing story tonight that puts the Liberal leader squarely in the national spotlight here uh, in the context as well of an election campaign where all kinds of uh, things have been said about other candidates from other parties who have had their past dredged up for things they've said or written and a lot of those incidents have been uncovered by the Liberal Party and they have uh, spared no scorn in identifying these people and talking about them and saying they're unfit uh, largely uh, for uh, elected office. Uh, Joël Denis Bellavance and Althea Raj watching along with me. How did he do? Well, he, I think he did what he needed to do, which is to apologize. And uh, I was, uh, you know, taken aback by the, um, the number of times that he did say, "I regret this uh, deeply." Even used the word "dumb," and so mm -hmm. to describe his uh, behavior then. So this will have, I think, um, an impact for the coming days in this election campaign. Will dominate, I think, the discussions about his action then and we'll have to merge that up with what he has done as Prime Minister uh, and his conduct. I think also he's also a judgment. But, but let's not forget in 2001 Mr. Trudeau was 29. So at what age do you uh, grow up, <laughs> if I may say? And a lot of the questions were about that, Althea, mm, yeah. that uh, you, you weren't a, a teenager, yeah. you weren't a, a, a young man at the age of 29. Uh, what are your thoughts on how he handled this? I think he did what he needed to in the sense that he needed to take full responsibility for what he said and he needed to almost be more outraged with himself than he expects the opposition leaders to be outraged with him. Um, but this is a type of story, it's like the India trip but for different reasons. This is a type of story that like not just the policy geeks who are watching CPAC are going to be talking about. This is the type of story that you're going to see on your Facebook feed that people are going to be talking about at work tomorrow and uh, that will just really percolate. A lot of people feel like the election really hasn't started yet, that people are not really paying attention. This may be the first you know, thing that people really start paying attention to. Um, you know, the fact that he admitted that there is a, another incident that I'm sure reporters are already going through right. yearbook pictures from his high school trying to figure out if there is a physical proof of this. And he was asked a number of times, are there any more you want to tell us about? And he said, at one point said plenty, and then he said, this is what I'm talking about tonight, basically deflecting. Uh, I mean, I, I, what does that mean? Uh, does he not know if there may maybe maybe others in his past? or uh, one, one element that is, uh, I think, interesting, uh, Peter, is the fact that they knew this was coming and they were preparing for that day when that picture would be published by the Time magazine and it's an American magazine yeah. uh, and so they were preparing for that day and um, there was a good question also asked by um, a reporter there asking when you saw so other people in the United States painting their face, uh, having brown face, yeah, black governor, face, did governor you think Virginia. about that picture then? And the Prime Minister I think was a bit taken aback by that, uh, that question but I think because it, there's been a controversy in the United States about that kind yeah, of Yeah, I mean, the, the context is, is every, everything we've seen in the United States and 
already in this election campaign, Althea, about what other candidates, missteps other candidates have made. The suggestion here is, uh, you know, and in reading the story in time, it sounds like they've had, they got the picture earlier this month. There have been overtures to the Prime Minister's office to say, is this Justin yeah, Trudeau. Chose to confirm it today. And they chose to confirm it today. Uh, Why I, I, today? <laughs> probably because they they must have known it one way or the other. It's coming out, and so how do we control the timing of it? If that's the issue, I don't know. But it, it raises the issue of of the opportunity at any point along this process, once you're contacted by time, to come out ahead of it and say, "There's going to be a story about me doing this," yeah. and yeah. it's true. I did it, and I feel bad about it, but. Uh, instead, we wait for the story to come out before the reaction. You know, parties usually do really good opposition research on their own people, so they know what's coming out. And it's interesting to me that, like, I've never heard such rumors percolating around Parliament Hill of Mr. Trudeau engaging in this uh, type of behavior. And if it's easily found in the yearbook from uh, West Point Gray, where he was teaching, one assumes that the opposition researchers would have had this. Why hasn't anybody talked to is, is there more of this from other people that we don't know of? I mean, to me, it seems really foreign. This is obviously something that I uh, nobody did when I was at school, that nobody did when I was at university. Um, but it, I was surprised to hear the Prime Minister not try to explain it to say, come out clearly and say, this is racist, and I'm really sorry, and yeah. I shouldn't have done this. One of the points I think needed to be made is that the Prime Minister, before he met reporters tonight, was busy phoning his own cabinet colleagues, mm -hmm. who are part of his cabinet, apologizing for this. So you've got a Prime Minister now who's apologizing, apologizing not only to Canadians, but to his own colleagues who, you know, uh, Arjit Sajan, the defense minister, uh, Amajit Sohi, yeah, yeah, among others. Minister you know, in Edmonton. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it, it must have been uh, a very difficult conversation for the prime minister to have. Is it clear how the, I mean, we heard from uh, Jagmeet Singh a little earlier and uh, we shot of a hotel room here in, in Toronto. Uh, we're standing by to hear from him uh, again now that the prime minister, or the liberal leader, Going to do that a lot. The campaign, <laughs> he, he, he he's the prime minister, but in this case, an election campaign, he's the liberal leader. But this is the hotel room where we're expecting any minute now to hear from the NDP leader, who will respond now that he's heard uh, Justin Trudeau. And I think it's that's another interesting part of this story. Is if you're the opposition parties, what do you do with this? You know, is it is this? Uh, I guess we'll find out uh, sure, in fairly yeah. shorter. And, and if you're wondering about Andrew Scheer, he's on a, a plane apparently on the way to Sherbrooke, Quebec, and we'll comment when he gets to Sherbrooke. So we'll have that later this evening in our coverage here. But uh, what do you do if you're the opposition party? Well, uh, the reaction by uh, Jagmeet Singh, I think, was very telling. Um, I think he was shocked and expressed it uh, in a very appropriate way. We've discovered a very different Jagmeet Singh in this campaign than we've seen since he's been the leader of the NDP, a very different uh, uh, political leader, more impressive, I would say, more in, in control and in command of his uh, files, but also of his emotions. And you could see it uh, today on this file. And if he's going to react again, as you mentioned. And if I were in the uh, Tory shoes, I think I would let Mr. Singh take the, you know, the, mo the main stage on this one because it deals with him, it deals, you know, something that he felt in the past, racism as a racialized leader. And they, if there's heavy criticism to come, uh, you're, as you're, you're, you're the opposition party, if you're the Conservatives, saying, yeah, exactly what Mr. Singh said. Exactly. Right? Yeah. What do you think? Well, I think that in this election campaign, we have the unique ability of having a racialized leader that can actually mm -hmm. speak from personal experience. And so we've never had 
somebody who could say why this is troublesome to me and to people who look like me. Mm -hmm. um, and so in that way, I think the criticism is more biting than it would be if it was, I'm sorry to say, but um, a white man or a white woman, uh, because they don't have that like personal connection. Why are you offended by this? And Mr. Singh can speak to that. Um, I agree that we've seen a new, ver a new I don't know if it's the new. We've seen the Jagmeet Singh from the NDP leadership race, frankly. He's a good campaigner. He's very charming. He's good on his feet. Maybe the um, foyer of the House of Commons yeah. was, you know, maybe it was baptismal by fire, and it wasn't uh, where he, he shined. But um, he, I thought he was very thoughtful and measured in his comments. And what he said earlier today about two versions of the Prime Minister, you know, I've actually heard that at the doors. People wondering if... You know, the guy we saw in India is really the guy who, you know, is in 24 Sussex, who doesn't really live at 24 Sussex, because <laughs> nobody lives at 24 no. Sussex at the moment. Well, it's being the renovated. Place is, uh, uh, rotting, not even renovating at the moment. But, um, you know, is the public image of Justin Trudeau, which public image am I supposed to believe? Um, and that's obviously probably something the NDP want uh, to pound on. And, and the, well, the Conservatives are already doing it, right? That's their campaign, not, not as, as advertised. advertised. But this is he a just walked bit into different. that. He just walked into that narrative. That Absolutely. This is that, something that, else that we didn't know about. Everybody is framed him around him. But I mean, the framing works because focus groups tell uh, the political parties how they feel about the leaders and what concerns that they have. And so, um, yeah, it is. It's interesting. What do we watch for next? How Mr. Singh will react again, how the Tories uh, react to that, I think this will be uh, very critical, and how this will play out in the next few days, because obviously this will derail uh, the Liberal campaign for a few days, uh, despite the good announcements that the Liberal leader has prepared. And if the Liberal war room have more ammunitions against the opposition parties on candidates, how will they use it against mm -hmm. those candidates? Can they use it? Can they use uh, it? That's in the this question. context. It would be best to hold, hold your <laughs> gunfire for a few days. <laughs> All right. Joël Denis Bellevance, Althea Raj, thanks for your time tonight. I appreciate it. And Thank we'll you. continue to follow the story, sure. obviously. My conversation earlier this evening, as this story was breaking with two colleagues from the Parliamentary Press Gallery, uh, you heard us make references there to... Uh, uh, Jagmeet Singh and Andrew Scheer. After that conversation, we did hear from both leaders uh, a short statement, no questions from Andrew Scheer, and a very emotional statement from the NDP leader. So let's listen to both. Like all Canadians, I was extremely shocked and disappointed when I learned of Justin Trudeau's actions this evening. Wearing brown face is an act of open mockery and racism. It was just as racist in 2001 as it is in 2019. And what Canadians saw this evening is someone with a complete lack of judgment and integrity and someone who's not fit to govern this country. Comme tous les Canadiens, j'étais choqué et déçu quand j'ai appris des actions de Justin Trudeau. Maquiller son visage en brun, c'était un acte raciste, pur et simple. C'était raciste en 2001, c'est raciste en 2019. Et les Canadiens ont vu quelqu'un avec un complètement manque de jugement et d'intégrité et quelqu'un qui n'est pas digne à gouverner ce grand pays. When I responded earlier, I hadn't seen the image itself. And seeing the image, it jarred me. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to come out and give a statement, but I got a message from a friend. And I faced a lot of racism in my life, and I can be honest with you, I fought back when I faced racism. I, I fought back with my fists. 
But there's a lot of people that weren't able to do that. One of my friends told me how he wasn't able to do that. And seeing this image today, the kids that see this image, the people that see this image, are going to think about all the times in their life that they were made fun of, that they were hurt, that they were hit, that they were insulted, that they were made to feel less because of who they are. And I want to talk to those people right now. I want to talk to all the kids out there, all the folks who live this and now are grown up and are still feeling the pain of racism. I want you to know that you might feel like giving up on Canada. You might feel like giving up on yourselves. I want you to know that you have value, you have worth, and you are loved. And I don't want you to give up on Canada, and please don't give up on yourselves. There's so many people in this country that believe in taking care of one another. I know it's hard to believe right now, but there are. And together, we are going to come together and take care of one another. So seeing this image is going to be hard for a lot of people. It's going to bring up a lot of pain. It's going to bring up a lot of hurt. Please reach out to your loved ones. Please reach out to people who are suffering in silence right now. Please let them know that they are loved and they are celebrated for who they are. Si je peux le dire en français, je sais que ces images vont rappeler des souvenirs pour beaucoup de gens. Et je veux parler à la jeunesse maintenant. Je sais que après voir ces images du Premier ministre, vous vous pensez vous rappeler les moments quand vous étiez ridiculisé, quand vous étiez insulté, quand vous étiez quand vous se sentiez que vous étiez moins. Et je sais que ça va être tellement difficile. Je sais que ça va heurter beaucoup. Et je, vous, je veux vous dire ça à tous les gens, toutes les personnes qui vont souvenir, vont rappeler des souvenirs tellement, tellement négatifs. Je veux vous dire que vous avez valeur, que vous êtes aimé. Et je sais que ça, ça c'est difficile de croire maintenant, mais, mais il y a plusieurs personnes à travers ce pays qui veulent vous aider, qui sont des alliés. Et ensemble, on veut bâtir une meilleure société. Merci. Vous avez l'air vraiment marqué par cette image. En fait, euh, ce n'était pas à cause de moi. Parce que dans ma vie, j'ai vraiment lutté contre le racisme. Quand quelqu'un était raciste, j'ai lutté contre ça. Contre ça. Mais c'était à cause des amis qui m'ont envoyé des messages. Et je me souviens, j'ai rappelé que ce n'était pas la même chose pour beaucoup de monde. Beaucoup de monde n'a pas eu la chance de lutter contre le racisme. Ils n'ont pas les moyens, ils n'ont pas les ressources, ils n'ont pas les capacités. Je pense de eux maintenant. Et c'est tellement difficile. Well, that's just it. It doesn't jar me personally, if I can be really honest with you. Uh, when I was growing up, I fought racists. I dealt with them myself, and I fought back. But I got a message from a friend who reminded me that there's a lot of people out there that couldn't do that. They couldn't fight back. They didn't have the ability to do that. They couldn't. They couldn't do it themselves. And I think that it's going to hurt to see this. It's going to hurt them a lot.
Prime Minister has apologized. He said he didn't think it was racist at the time. He realizes now that it is. And he's going to continue going on in the election campaign. I'm wondering, do you think his apology is enough for him to say, back then in 2001, I didn't think it was racist. Now I realize I've made a mistake. You know, today I'm not speaking to the Prime Minister. And it's not for me to say that. It's for the people to decide. I'm speaking today to young people, to people who've grown up with racism, people who've grown up being, being told that they were less, being told that they were less worthy, less valuable, and who couldn't fight back and had no way to stand up for themselves. I'm speaking to them, and I want them to know that you are valued, you are loved, you have worth. And please don't let this make you give up on yourself or give up on Canada, because we live in a beautiful place. C'est une situation précise que je ne peux pas raconter parce qu'il m'a dit qu'il n'a jamais parlé de ça dans sa vie. Comment la, la réponse du premier ministre, selon vous, est adéquate ou non adéquate? Ça, c'est une question que euh, la population canadienne veut répondre. Euh, je vais parler aux gens, aux populations qui vont être touchées par cet incident et je sais que ça va heurter beaucoup. Merci beaucoup. All right, reactions from uh, First Conservative Leader uh, Andrew Scheer to this uh, story tonight that is, uh, you know, developing news and breaking news in the last four or five hours in this country and from an emotional, as you saw Jagmeet Singh. Um, in one case, Andrew Scheer saying Justin Trudeau is not fit to govern, and in Jagmeet Singh's case, saying he's not talking about that right now. He's not. That's up for the people to decide the future of the Prime Minister. But he's got a message to other people hit by racist acts, affected by racist acts, to not give up on their country because of an incident such as this. Uh, let's f hear from people. The, Jagmeet Singh was at a town hall event in uh, North York and Toronto earlier this evening when the story was breaking and some of the people in that group uh, as they were leaving that town hall were made aware of the story and here's some of their comments and reaction to this controversy involving the Liberal leader. I don't know what he could say to be honest. I just think that is is terrible. I don't know really what he could say to to um, to defend himself. Um, that's, what, that's why I'm here. Looking forward to what the NDP has to offer. Um, Andrea Vasquez Jimenez, definitely pushing for her. Uh, Justin Trudeau, definitely not voting that way. And this doesn't look good on his side either. What, what kind of thoughts? Yeah, he said he needs to answer. He needs to answer. And he, he, out, he said it was racist as well and it's completely despicable. Any black face, brown face. Not okay. Yeah. What kind of level of sensitivity or sensibility do you think it displays? What's, what kind of level of sensitivity? Not very much. And to speak about diversity and to speak about being anti-racist and welcoming and inclusive, um, this doesn't respond well to that. Yeah. <laughs> when you see this, what, what does that make you think? Mm, it gives me goosebumps because it's upsetting as a person of color. Um, I would never walk around with white face. It's disrespectful to someone who is white. So as a person of color, I find that very disrespectful. It's just the same thing along as blackface, as Mr. Singh spoke about today. It's, it really changes my opinion of him. 
and it lowers my opinion of him because he's the prime minister and I must respect that, but I don't enjoy that he did that at all, even in the past. Because even he will say, oh, it's in the past, it's 2001, that's what, 18 years ago? That doesn't matter. That's something that's irresponsible and negligent. As a person who lives in Canada, we're a multicultural society, we're not America. Mm -hmm. We're Canada, and I'm proud of that, And I'm, but I'm not proud of that our Prime Minister okay. was in brown face at all. Having, to me, it's disgusting. Having a picture like that coming in the middle of an election, what, what, what do you think is going to happen? Well, there will be a lot of controversy about it because social media is a huge thing, right? It's different than even four years ago, five years ago when he was campaigning, so it's going to be huge. Could it sway? I don't know. I, I, I sometimes feel that people already have their mind made up on who they're going to vote for. They just want to hear the platforms. But I, I knew who I was going to vote for before. Um, but definitely wouldn't vote liberal. Have not voted liberal in my life, actually. <laughs> so I would, I would never consider voting liberal again with a leader like that. He's in my age group, so I would never do that either at, at a party. So. Someone inside mentioned that sometimes when you're young you do stupid thing and if you apologize no I don't I don't agree that we're in the same age group I'm in my early 40s no that is unacceptable we grew up he grew up in the same time as me which was a very multicultural Canada it wasn't 1950 that was 2001 that's unacceptable yeah, definitely unacceptable may I ask that's that's the photo okay what do you think about that I, I don't know I don't I don't know that I can comment on something that I haven't read or seen I have no clue does that look like him? Uh, so I the don't Prime know. Minister's office confirmed that it is him and okay. he's about to address it in a statement to reporters shortly. I don't really have a comment. Okay. I, I, I really do, because I don't really know what. <laughs> is it a masquerade ball? Is it something? I don't know what. I don't, I don't know. The, okay, so yeah. then but is it there okay has to be. To dress for me, of course. Yeah. Like, it, okay. Because I'm black, doesn't like if somebody choose. I'm sorry. If somebody chooses to do something that's odd, it's nothing on me, but except if they're coming. You. It does not offend me at all, yeah. because I'm strong enough. I know who I am. I know what my race is. I know what I can do. If I get cut and they bleed and they get cut, we bleed the same. So that has that doesn't bother me at all. Would it affect your vote? Uh, somebody who dressed up in blackface or brownface would that change what you thought to vote about them? No. Think of, remember what I said. It, who I am as a person on the inside, I know who I am already. If somebody chooses to behave in a way that is uh, silly or, and I don't know the context behind what is there, so I can't really speak to it. As a therapist, ethics is me, and you know, I, I want to make sure that I know what's behind it before I make a comment on something that I don't know. Poor judgment. Poor judgment. Many of us have made things that we regret in our lives, but he grew up in this kind of idea, and so he should have had better judgment from the outset. He will probably apologize eventually or not it, with an apology? And in, in, in the point that he's been shown this as a reminder of those days, he should have apologized a long time ago. I mean, it, it, it's it's a simple matter of seeing what you've done, realizing what you've done, and realizing you shouldn't have done it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say so.
Well, of course, this story overtook the rest of the election day. Uh, it happened late in the day, but let's look at what else was happening in the campaign before all of this. This day featured more big-ticket promises from the party leaders for dental care and seniors, and that's putting a lot of pressure on the parties to explain how they'll pay for their promises and when Canadians will know exactly how much they'll cost. Coming up, Canada's first parliamentary budget officer and candidates on a little bit of a controversy that's developed over the vetting of the campaign promises and who's doing that and how it's being done. But first, our day eight campaign primer. This is to go. The Conservative leader campaigned in Ontario today in ridings the Conservatives hope to win and need to win if they're going to have a path to victory. At a morning stop at a barber shop in Hamilton, Andrew Scheer announced a Conservative government will review all business subsidy programs and cut $1.5 billion annually to Canadian and foreign corporations that don't need the help from the federal government. And Scheer offered some examples. When Loblaws called, Trudeau jumped at the chance to hand one of the wealthiest corporations in Canada $12 million to buy new fridges. He was prepared to fork over $18 million to build an airport in Cape Breton for members of a private golf course, and only back down when taxpayers complain. He also wrote off millions of dollars in taxpayer-funded loans to the Irving family, one of Canada's wealthiest. And back in February, in the middle of the SNC-Lavalin corruption scandal, he handed BlackBerry a check for $40 million. And when the CEO was asked whether or not his company needed this generous taxpayer handout, his answer was short and sweet, no. So far, the Conservative campaign promises have surpassed $9 billion. The Conservatives have released the costing of their promises as they go, done by the Parliamentary Budget Office. Andrew Scheer notes the Liberals aren't doing the same. We believe that by including the costing at the moment of the announcement, it's better for Canadians so that they can have the details uh, right away. Uh, obviously, the Liberals have a, a terrible fiscal record that they are ashamed of. Uh, I believe that's why they're not participating uh, in the very process that they themselves set up. Uh, even, even at that, though, we know that Canadians can't trust anything that Justin Trudeau is promising. <laughs> Liberal leader Justin Trudeau spent most of his day in New Brunswick, where the Liberals won all 10 seats last time around. They now appear to face tough challenges from the Conservatives and at least half of those seats, including Fredericton. At a local lawn bowling club, Justin Trudeau announced a re-elected Liberal government will increase monthly old-age security payments by 10% for Canadians over the age of 75, giving them up to $729 a year more. Trudeau also promised to increase the survivor benefits under the Canada Pension Plan by 25%, providing as much as $2,100 a year more. Seniors have built the Canada that we know and love today, and they deserve to enjoy their golden years to the fullest. While the Conservative leader wants to go back to the policies of the Harper years, policies that hurt seniors, our new Liberal government will continue to step up for those who need it and deserve it most. But these promises require the cooperation of the provinces, and Trudeau didn't rule out that pension premiums would have to rise to pay for the increase in pension payments. The Liberals say the increase in OAS payments will cost more than $2.5 billion by 2024. But those numbers weren't backed up by the independent analysis of the Parliamentary Budget Office. And today, Trudeau admitted some parts of his platform 
will be excluded from PBO scrutiny. I can assure you uh, that we have been and are working with the Parliamentary Budget Officer on uh, costing elements for our platform. Uh, we will be releasing a fully costed, fully responsible platform uh, in the coming weeks, including all the work done by the Parliamentary Budget Officer on specific measures. The NDP campaign started the day in Sudbury, Ontario, at a dental lab at the French-language Boreal College, where leader Jagmeet Singh promised free dental care to Canadians with a family income of less than $70,000 starting next year. The NDP says the plan would save a family of four in that income bracket more than $1,200 a year. Families with income between seventy dollars and $90,000 a year would pay a sliding scale of co-payments. Eventually, Singh says, the plan would be universal, covering all Canadians. Our plan that we're putting forward is Denticare. It'll cover everyone who, is, who has salary less than $70,000. They'll be completely covered with this plan. And those who make seventy between seventy dollars and ninety will have a sliding scale. But this is our first step toward the dream of universal Denticare for all. Singh's dental promise was costed by the parliamentary budget officer. The PBO says it would initially cost $1.9 billion, but would drop to $856 million a year by 2029. That prompted questions about how the NDP will pay for billions of dollars in new promises. Well, the difference is we're not going to give billions of dollars away to corporations, the wealthiest corporations that don't need help. We're making a clear choice. We have limited resources. We understand that. We would not give $14 billion to the wealthiest corporations to buy corporate jets. We just won't do that. Instead, we'd invest in people. That's the big difference. And that's the kind of day it's been. Day eight of the campaign. So there has been lots of discussion around the cost of the party platforms and how to pay for those promises. In this election, the Office of the Parliamentary Budget Officer has been given the powers to vet party promises, but not all promises are being vetted and there are limits on what the PBO can reveal and what it can look at. How fundamental is it to the voting process for Canadians to know early what promises cost? Let's get some perspective from Canada's first Parliamentary Budget Officer. He's Kevin Page. He's the President and CEO of the Institute uh, Fiscal Study and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. He's with me now. Good to see you again. Good to be here. Uh, to be clear, this whole process of the PBO involved in election <coughs> costing, vetting, and so on, that actually started under you, right? Well, actually, it started, it was, uh, it was an initiative brought in by the Liberals in 2015. So they, they made the office independent and they expanded the mandate. And this was part of the expansion of the mandate. Okay. Uh, so let's start with what, what we're seeing the parties do. I mean, we're days into the campaign, eight days into the campaign. Um, what do you think is the new mandate of the PBO? Does it seem to be working? Yes. Yeah, I think uh, all things considered, I think it's working very well. I think some parties are making better use of it in these early days. Uh, I would point to the, the Conservatives doing an excellent job with each initiative that, you know, they announce now on a daily basis. We're getting, you know, the press release from the party. We're getting their backgrounders. We're getting the PBO cost of reports. So 
I mean, folks like yourself, citizens, uh, civil society groups, we go to these reports, we get a sense, okay, when do these initiatives start? How do they roll out? What are the, like, the, the taxpayer costs? And I think that's a lot. And other parties are a little bit behind, but, we, you know, we hear that they're going to be, they're, they're using PBO, and we'll wait to see their cost of platforms. But so what do you think the value, what, what's the added, what's the benefit to the voter? As you point out, the Conservatives are doing it, the NDP's doing it. Uh, the Greens say they're going to get the whole platform costed at some point by the PPO. The Liberals say they're only going to look, have the PPO look at some of the specific measures, and we'll see those when we have a full platform announcement. So what's the benefit to the, the voter of, of having this work in lock, lockstep? Announcement, costing, yeah. PPO <clears throat> endorsement. Yeah, I think in some cases, um, Peter, like again, they say in, in these sort of big material announcements that we've heard, the biggest probably being the Conservative initiative, or proposal rather, to to lower the, the bottom tax rate from 15 to you know, 3.75. Like I think, you know, there is, you know, that's a big number. Uh, $6, billion in, $6 billion overall annually fully implemented. And so, you know, thanks to PBO, we get to see, like, you know, when they costed this, when are you starting this? When does this start? It doesn't start next year. Right. It starts, you know, a little more than a year and a half down the road. So we get to see the profile. And we know, you know, we know that PBO did the costing. People like me know the models that they've used, and so we know basically where to go if we want to understand what's the distributional impact. So I think, you know, again, I think it adds a lot of bona fides to the announcement. And again, they're independent. Mm -hmm. They're not, uh, you know, it's not political. And they do this in a nice two-pager. We, we saw the Conservatives talk about $1.5 billion. They're going to find a $1.5 billion in, in cuts every year, they say, from uh, corporate subsidies in this country. Uh, and that's endorsed by the PBOs. You're wondering about that endorsement, whether that's the right endorsement to make. Yeah, I don't know that PBO endorsed it. That may be, it's a strong word, but they, they definitely put out a backgrounder, which is really just a table saying it's 1.5. We can't, there's not much where you can really do it, but they put their, their, their name Their on name's it. attached to the, yeah, they can say they, they ran it by the PBO. They ran it by the PBO. And for somebody like, like me, when I look at something like that, and um, my guess is they, they probably had the same questions internally, but maybe they're under some pressure to release that backgrounder. But for somebody like me, $1.5 billion corporate subsidy, I think, you know, the, you know Mr. Shear is absolutely right. There's definitely waste there. We could find savings. The question is, how big is the savings? And, you know, he highlights a number of initiatives. Maybe it's 50 or $100 million a year. He says he can get $1.5 billion a year. You don't think so? Well, I think when people like me will we'll look at the public accounts, what's the total spend in, you know, in, in, in the Department of Innovation and Science, or the old Industry Canada Department, it's like $3.5 billion a year. If you add the regional agencies, you know, Space Agency, uh, you know, the Research Department, the National Research Department, you maybe get as high as $7 billion. So $1.5 billion on that base, that's a big number. That's a big savings cut. And, you know, if you, again, if you look to the tax expenditure side, the Conservatives use a lot of tax credits and exemptions. If you look at that list uh, for businesses, I, my guess is they're not going to touch that. So they're going to have a hard time finding $1.5 billion a year. So should PBOs put a backgrounder out? My guess is if I was putting the background out, it would have been critical. Like, what's the base? What's the governance process? Right. I, yeah, I'd want to know those, uh, those, those questions. Okay. Um, so let, let, let me go back to the Liberals now. So the Liberals are, are, are not costing each proposal as they go. Uh, should they be? Yeah, my, my guess is, uh, my, my assumption rather is that, you know, the, uh, the, the big announcements, the, you know, the ones they've announced today with respect to pensions, respect to old age security, uh, what are the fiscal impacts, like I assume that they, they work with PBO on that and we're going to see that, you know, the, those two pages, those costing notes when they release their platform, that's their decision to do it that way. Um, 
Yeah, I guess if that's the case, if this, if, if PBOs looked at this and says, yeah, those numbers make sense to us, why wouldn't you say it? Like, why wouldn't you do what the others are doing? Say that on the same day you announce it. This has been looked at by the PBO. Yeah, I would I, prefer it that way. And maybe the way they, the, maybe it's their more from a political perspective. They think that. Um, you know, they're getting a, a, a political impact every day. The news is covering these sorts of announcements, the announcements that we had today and other days. And then when they roll out their platform, you, I think you'll not only will you get a kind of a recapitulation of all these measures, but, you know, people will look at this sort of fiscal plan, what's happening to the deficit track, et cetera. But then, then you'll see how is PBO used. The rules around the PBO, he, he, he looks at stuff that the parties bring to him or an independent can, can bring something uh, to him to look at, but uh, he doesn't release it unless the parties release it. And, and is, is that a weakness in the process? Seems to me, and I'll give you an example. Uh, let's say a, a pick an announcement. A party says, it's you know, here, here's our announcement. It costs this amount of money. And then they run it by the PBO, and the PBO goes, actually, no, it's going to be way higher than that. But we don't ever get to know the PBO number, do we? If the party doesn't want to say the PBO doesn't think this is right, we don't hear that. Well, you know, my, again, my assumption is, and maybe we'll see if it gets tested, that uh, if there is that type of scenario where, um, you know, PBO was asked to provide a costing on a very specific measure, the political party announces the very same measure but with a different number, my guess is you'll hear from the parliamentary budget officer on that particular scenario. If there's a big, if they change the number, I think PBO would probably put out their, their costing report and would show that there's a different number. Um, but yeah, they definitely, like behind the scenes, they worked out a process, the priority budget officer with all the parties, you know, um, the, you know, here's how we're going to do it. We need to get your measures in early. We will, you know, this is how we release it. Um, and yeah, I think it's a positive thing. We know that the priority budget officer has worked with departments in a, in a, in a, I think in a right. very inclusive way. I really struggled in my day to work with departments to get information from departments. I think this is some bridge building that's going on. Okay. Uh, what's missing from the... Con we, we haven't heard the parties talk a lot about uh, how they're going to pay for stuff, just what, what, what they're going to do um, and the promises they're making. Is that something missing from the, the fiscal conversation uh, as yes. you and I speak now? What more should we be hearing? Yeah, I think what's missing, Peter, is uh, we will need to see and, and we will need to see the fiscal plan for these platforms. And, um, you know, we've already, I think the, the, the Conservatives already probably announced something in the neighborhood of, you know, $8 billion annually in, in, base, in measures, you know, offset with this, potentially this $1.5 billion corporate tax cut. So, again, what does this mean to the deficit track? Like, are the, our finances, are they in good shape? What's happening to the deficit? How fast is that stock of debt going up? Um, and, and in the context of uh, a lot of global uncertainty. Very you know, much we, so. we don't know where the economies of, of necessarily this country, but of the rest of the world are headed, and that can have a huge impact, but no one's talking about that. No, I think there was a question in the very first debate uh, last week around um, what would potentially happen. I don't think the party leaders, I think Mrs. May and, and Mr. Singh kind of alluded to the fact that they would let the deficit go up. Mm -hmm. um, nobody really talked about, again, Peter, when we, you know, when we were looking at this issue back in 2008, we needed a stimulus package. So what would be the nature of those sorts of investments? How would you respond? I think it's, it is likely, certainly the bond markets are saying a chance of having some sort of recession. This week alone, we saw a shock to right. the oil price market, the oil markets. Something like this could trigger a recession what will be the response? Yeah, and so you need, I think, we need to assess that. And actually, my, my office, the Institute of Fiscal right. Studies and Democracy, we're going to look at that issue. Uh, among some others, I bet. Uh, but 
Yeah, but certainly looking at the fiscal plan, are these fiscal plans, are they credible? Like we'll look at those assumptions. And if they use the PBO economic assumptions, I think they would be credible. We, deem, we think those are credible. But your point about how would they manage uncertainty, will the platforms address that issue? We haven't talked about that and we haven't seen that in the platforms. Are these fiscal plans, are they responsible? Is it a responsible medium-term plan to be running deficits of $20, $30 billion a year, potentially over the next five years? Is it? I don't think so. Not in this environment. Is our, would our, is our fiscal structure, is it sustainable? Like what happens when, as with aging demographics? What happens to that? Is it? <laughs> as it We're currently... sustainable right now. Right. But again, if under some of these plans, depending on how, what kind of revenues are increased to, to, to offset potentially pharmacare, um, universal, potentially a universal basic income type of proposal. Uh, it, you know, again, it really depends on, on measures we haven't seen yet. And then let's look at the transparency of these initiatives. So far, I think the transparency has been quite good, thanks to PBO. All right. Kevin Page, always good to talk to you. Thanks for coming. Thank you, sir. Let's bring in three candidates now to talk about the different party approaches to independent costing of the campaign promises and proposals being done by the Parliamentary Budget Officer. Steve McKinnon is the Liberal candidate for re-election in the riding of Gatineau, Quebec. Lisa Raitt is the Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party and the candidate for re-election in the riding of Milton in Ontario. And Angela McEwen is the NDP candidate in Ottawa, West Nepean. It's good to see all three of you. Thanks for being here. Good evening. Steve McKinnon, let me, let me start with you. The Liberals created these new powers for the PBO. The other parties are getting their costing done by the PBO and announcing proposals with the costing, but the Liberals uh, aren't following uh, that promise to have all uh, the proposals scrutinized by the PBO and saying it'll be just the big ticket items and eventually they'll be released with the whole platform. How come? Well, uh, let's, let's first uh, review all that. We respect the PBO. Uh, we like the PBO. We've invested in the PBO, and we've made, uh, of course, a lot of improvements to the PBO system. So all of that's very good in a democracy. And of course, we're signed up uh, to have our platform. Uh, our platform will be fully costed, and indeed, all the major items will be uh, costed by the PBO, and those will be released uh, as we uh, can better contextualize them. Uh, and that was, of course, after we uh, get out our major platform planks. So there's no question. Uh, that uh, Canadians will be able to make their judgments and uh, render judgment on our platform and on our commitments uh, in the full knowledge of what they're going to cost. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, well, well. Uh, and we're, we're, we're going to have the PBO uh, costings uh, out, and we're going to have those uh, done on our major commitments uh, within the context of a fully costed platform. Okay. Uh, we'll we'll uh, drill down on some of that in a moment. Lisa Ray, let me bring you in here. The, the Conservatives at first were... Uh, didn't seem to be too hot on the idea initially of having the PBO go over all of this. You've, you were reassured in meetings with the PBO about how this would work, and now you're releasing promises along with the PBO costing. So uh, why are you doing that? Why have you come to that uh, decision? And what do you think of Mr. McKinnon's explanation? The concern at the beginning was always about whether or not we'd be able to ensure that we weren't going to have any leaks of what our platform was. And after our meetings with the Parliamentary Budget Office, we very clearly that was not going to be the case. So we have submitted for costing and we're very happy that we've done so. And interestingly enough for me, it sounds like what Steve McKinnon is saying is we like the PBO. We think he's doing a great job. We're just not going to use them. So their entire platform is going to come with a little bit of an asterisk next to it, which says not fully costed by the parliamentary budget office. Okay. Angela McEwen, the NDP is using the PBO. Um, why do you think it's important to do that? 
Well, I think it's important that when you're making an announcement about something, that along with those headlines, you're backed up by the credibility of the parliamentary budget officer. So it seems to me like the Liberals are trying to have it two ways. They can make these big announcements and have, have the news there without the PBO contradicting them, and then hopefully maybe later on when they release it, um, it'll be buried by more information. Uh, Steve McKinnon, the changes the Liberals made to the Parliament of Canada Act, uh, in the rules, the new powers, let me, let me tell you what it says, you, you may know. Uh, once a costed promise has been made public, the PBO should release its costing document as soon as possible. Uh, and for the other parties, that's met at the same time. And it's pretty clear on how this was supposed to work, I think, when you hear those words. So why the delay? Why not, if you announced, and we're going to get into some of the things you announced today, when you're announcing them, why not have them backed up by what the PBO says it'll cost? Well, of course, uh, you know, nothing's ever done in isolation. Uh, public policy is a continuum of things, and many things connect to other things. So uh, in order to better contextualize all of that, I think we want to make sure that Canadians have access to the appropriate and accurate information. And uh, they will in the very short term, Peter. I can assure uh, all of those watching us that uh, Canadians will be able to make a determination on our major commitments fully costed by the independent PBO, uh, within the context of a fully ca costed platform, okay. and we look but, forward but to doing me... that. But, but, you know, what I'd like to know is whether the Conservatives are going to show us uh, their fiscal plan, because here we have Mr. Scheer, you, you know, it's all well and good to cost your commitments, your tax cuts, your spending, and what have you. Uh, but, he but here's what we know about Conservatives. Uh, they're promising also to balance the budgets. So in Ontario, that's meant one very, very clear thing. And, uh, you know, we hope that the Conservatives put out a lot of their assumptions upon which they're making all of these spending commitments and I, these tax I, commitments. And, and we're going to let Lisa Ray answer that. But first, I, I want to come back to, uh, to the question with you. So, for instance, today, uh, the Prime Minister made, uh, the, the Liberal leader made a, a pension announcement today uh, that, that the party says will cost, I think it's $1.2 billion or $1.4 billion. The party says that. So... I mean, so you've put a price on it, just not mm -hmm. not costed by the PBO. So explain explain what this interconnectedness is that doesn't allow you to have a PBO costed today, but the party did. Well, I'm not going to get too far into uh, that's all, okay. All we that kind we, of, we are okay uh, in the weeds. This is an audience uh, that doesn't uh, mind weeds. No, I, I very I very much understand that. And given uh, the level of sophistication of the people watching us, they will know that uh, some public policy items. Uh, have salutary or carry-on effects uh, in other areas of public policy. And so uh, in order to make a more accurate presentation or a more accurate assumption of, of what uh, items and what public policy initiatives cost, uh, they need to be presented as a, as a whole. And that's what we will be okay. doing. Lisa Reid, go ahead. Even when they write the rules, Peter, they can't seem to follow them. I mean, they're the ones that came up with how the process was supposed to unfold, and now they're taking on pass how to do it. And as far as them saying they're waiting for the right time to contextualize, it just means that they don't want to submit their costs because they know people will see exactly how much it's going to cost. And it just leads us to the conclusion we all know it's going to happen, which is they want to tax you more. And what we've learned from the Ontario Federal Liberal Caucus is they're going to go after the sale of your home and the profit well, in the sale. Oh, Let's just be clear about that. Point. That is categorically false. It's been debunked uh, in every possible uh, uh, form uh, in which it's been presented. It has been debunked thoroughly, and it's not happening. Right. No, it's not. Let, 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 let's say that they're not, but maybe they should, right? 
How, how do you mean that? After. Oh, so uh, so the sale of your home, <laughs> yeah. where that's that's tax free, where people are flipping and they don't they don't necessarily own that home for more than two years. That's a problem, right? Okay, so, so Lisa, you can take that up with the NDP. <laughs> the now, now we see the minority. Now we see the minority government striking deals. Look, they had their own. <laughs> it had liberal on it. It came from Adam Vaughn, their own housing parliamentary secretary. And they can't deny it wasn't that it was their policy okay, that let, they put forward to go into the platform. Let, let, let me draw us back. Do we look? Was any of that run by the PBO? That's that's where we are today. Yeah, no. <laughs> All right. So, so Angela. So, I mean, here we have your your leader today uh, uh, made an announcement of a of a dental plan uh, for the country uh, and for certain uh, income earners in the country at least at least to start. And again, that had supporting documents from the parliamentary budget officer. So. I mean, what's your answer to Mr. McKinnon that there's these things are often interconnected. So there, there's, are, there's a value yeah. in waiting till you know everything about the possible other effects of a program before you roll out what this part of it costs. Right, which is interesting because that's true. And you're an economist, Absolutely. right? You and I am an economist. I yeah. deal with budgets all the time, um, but that's not how this parliamentary budget process was set up. They were set up just to look at individual. Items. So the dental plan, how much does that cost? Not how does it interact with other programs? And they're not going to cost our fiscal plan. They're not going to say this balances out or the fiscal plan makes sense. They're going to say this policy announcement that they proposed costs, it, according to our assumptions, this much money. So what I hear from Mr. McKinnon is that they didn't like what the PBO said to them and they went a different way, that, which I is mean, also a possibility. You can get the PBO to do the costing and if you don't like it, you can say, before the process has completed, you can say, you know what, We're, we never just, spoke. Just as, never a, as a point of reference, we heard uh, the, the I, I don't know if you can call him, the, he's not the founding PBO, the original PBO, <laughs> Kevin Page, on this program saying, Mr. McKinnon, that uh, he, he thinks it's preferable to do it the way the other two, the, the Conservatives and the Democrats are doing it, to keep people in the loop right from the beginning. It allows other people outside, not just other political parties, to look at these proposals and have a good uh, amount of time to analyze it. So I, I guess that brings me to the well, question of, okay, go ahead. Well, I think it's preferable to have Canadians vote in full knowledge of uh, major policy initiatives that are being presented what the uh, independent costing of those is in the context of a fully costed platform. That's what we're going to do. That's the principle that we are striving to uphold, and that's the principle that we brought in when we brought in uh, this very initiative. with an independent for the parliamentary, parliamentary budget officer. With an in independent parliamentary budget officer. And, and uh, again, there is some, uh, uh, there will be a full and complete picture for Canadians before they vote. And uh, that's so uh, our the, commitment to Canadians, uh, and we what, think that's pretty what, transparent. What, what, what was and, the point of the rule that said a costed promise uh, that's in the in the Parliament Act? What's the what the purpose of the rule that says a costed promise uh, with a PBO attachment well, as soon as possible, as soon as it's been announced? Yeah, well, we want it to be accurate as well, and so we've been over this, Peter. Uh, we want to make sure that Canadians <laughs> have the full picture of the major commitments of the Liberal Party of Canada in the context of a fully costed platform. That's what we're going to deliver. And I sure hope, I sure hope that we can count on the other parties to present the entirety of their fiscal plans, because we know that Mr. Scheer can't make this math add up. He cannot put together a budget uh, or a fiscal plan that is not going to result in massive cuts to Canadians. We know he's going to cut. We know he's going to cut, uh, as he said today, supports to businesses. 
What are the other cuts, Lisa? Okay. Come clean. All right. Come <laughs> clean on this very uh, program and okay, tell okay, us, okay. is it the, is it the no, Canada the, Child the, Benefit? The, is it, no, is no, it okay. pensions? So what are Lisa, the cuts? Lisa Ray, go ahead. there's two of us on the show now asking questions. So uh, go, go ahead and uh, and I do. I, you know, I could hold up and show it to you. We are going to ask, when are, your, when are we going to see the fiscal plans for all of the parties? Because Kevin Page and I talked about that too. That's one of the things so far missing from the conversation is what's the fiscal plan that goes with these promises in the context of a, a changing global economy and lots of uncertainty. So let's answer that. Let's go there. Well, first of all, I reflect upon the fact that a liberal like Steve McKinnon saying we should come clean is probably the biggest piece of irony I've heard today. Uh, they got a lot to come clean for and they haven't done so. You heard Andrew Scheer, my leader today, talk about how we would make sure that we were being fiscally responsible. And what we talked about was a review of programs that seem to be only going to large companies that actually don't need the money in order to ensure that they're doing what they need to do. And we cited a couple of ones. BlackBerry is a great example. $40 million went to BlackBerry and the CEO at the press conference said, yeah, well, we didn't really need it. A lot of Canadians out there do need that kind of money. And it's important for a new conservative government to come in and review these programs to ensure that they're actually doing what they're supposed to do, which is to deliver for Canadians. And, and very quickly, when when will we see a, are Canadians going to wait till the end of the campaign to get everybody's, like days before they vote to, to realize what's actually on offer and how it's plugged in and how it all seems to make or supposed to make fiscal sense? Or how, how quickly well, should they have that? It's day eight, and we've already talked about our universal tax credit. We've already talked, our universal tax cut. We've talked about the tax credits. And today we're telling you how we're going to be paying for some of them. So we're far ahead of the other parties in terms of giving a fulsome fiscal picture. And my leader said today, we're going to be transparent. We're going to tell Canadians exactly what we plan to do in order to make life more affordable for them and ensure that they're the ones getting ahead. Angela McKeon, let me hear you on that. The NDP and a fiscal plan, when will we see it? Right. So the NDP has put out the values behind our fiscal plan. So we put out our whole platform. Um, earlier this year, we were way ahead of all the other parties talking about what exactly is going to underpin our decisions that we make. Because budgets, when it comes down to it, are about choices, right? And we're going to choose to um, tax the rich a little bit more. We're going to increase taxes on big corporations, on the wealthy, and we're going to close those um, loopholes that the Liberals said they would close but haven't. We're going to go after people that are evading taxes. Um, there's billions of dollars there that goes to tax havens. And we're going to use that revenue to invest in things that people need, like health care, like affordable housing. And when we do that, the economy performs better. I know this as an economist. When people have more money in their pockets, when they can afford housing, when we have those core public services that we need, the economy does better. Right. And so as long as we're um, having a better return mm -hmm. on investment, then that means that we're spending our money responsibly. And that's what a new Democrat government's going to do. All right. So what I'm hearing is there, the fiscal plans are all coming. And uh, <laughs> the, the, it sounds like the different approach to the use of the parliamentary budget officer and his costing will continue. So uh, appreciate all of you uh, giving me your time tonight. Steve McKinnon, Lisa Raid, and Angela McKinnon. Great to talk to you. We'll talk again. Bye, Steve. Bye. Good night. Writings to Watch is campaign coverage you won't find anywhere else. Our reporters will be on the ground in 50 writings, fanning out from coast to coast. From the campaign office 
to the coffee shop, we're connecting Canadians, digging into the issues that will sway their vote. Honestly, with global warming and all the issues that are happening with the environment, we should seriously pick someone that will care about the subject. There should be more help from government for affordable housing. Look at Canada and look at every province for what they actually contribute and help them. You know, we feel helpless here in Alberta. We do. Follow the candidates as they hit the pavement and make their pitch to voters. Get to know the key writings that will decide the election. And hear what you, the voters, have to say about it all. Writings to Watch. Campaign coverage you won't find anywhere else. Right here on CPAC. And for the second half of our program tonight, let's put you in one of those ridings to watch. This time we're headed to Nova Scotia and one of those key ridings that could well be in play in this election. This riding has a lot of beauty, but also faces challenges, and the most recent one has been recovering from Hurricane Dorian. Tens of thousands of people were left without power, some for up to a week. In Shelburne, a centre for the riding's fishing industry, damage to the town's wharf was so extensive, engineers don't know if it'll be usable next season. In Lunenburg, the town's sewage facility was put out of service and has been releasing raw sewage into the bay. And for political candidates in the riding, Dorian meant the election campaign was modified or temporarily put on hold. Communities are taking care of each other. My friend Matt and Kira, who own this restaurant right here, offer free meals to people who were without power. We opened our business as a warming comfort station for people who were out of power. We did take a few days off once the, the hurricane hit, obviously. Uh, you know, you, you don't want to go to places where there's people still without power, without... Uh, um, with trees down, challenging situations. Um, what, it, what I did though was not so much campaigning, is just going out and checking on communities, checking on my wharves in the riding, uh, seeing with what people needed and if there was any way I could help. Well, we didn't campaign for the couple of days after because a lot of people didn't have power and still trying to cope with uh, freezers that were thawing or trees that were down in the properties. When it's not being battered by hurricanes or Atlantic storms, this riding is known for the beauty of its coast. The Lighthouse Route, which includes some of the biggest attractions of Nova Scotia's $2.5 billion tourism industry. Also, South Shore St. Margaret's is a vast territory. It covers 8,400 square kilometres. But behind the veil, residents are struggling with crumbling infrastructure. Voters are feeling that this election is about getting some crucial money flowing into the area. According to Health Canada, with the readings that came back, she shouldn't, or we shouldn't even be in the water. People shouldn't be getting the water on them. You shouldn't be boating on it. You shouldn't be getting any water droplets on you. 
And then it really became concerning because there were times that I would see kids and tourists actually swimming in the water. Until recently, houses along the Lahave River have had their home sewage piped directly, untreated, into the river. A leftover from the 60s when septic systems weren't mandatory. Danielle Oleshko is a mother of six-year-old twins. She's also a business owner. Concerned for her kids, she joined the movement to try to get the effluent cleaned up. First, they forced authorities to post warning signs, and then they pushed for a cleanup. Cleanup has been uh, in progress. Um, there used to be over 600 straight pipes uh, dumping rough sewage and fecal matter right into the Lahave River. Um, since this whole movement started about five years ago, well before I came onto the scene, they've removed about 200 of them. Um, their goal is to have them all out by 2020. A sense of frustration and calls for government action are shared by many in the lobster fishery, so crucial to the region's economy. Uh, the rock out there, 100, 40, 100. One of them is Vincent Boudelier. Last year, he put up $30,000 of his own money to build a new wharf for his lobster boat. He says he can live with that, but he and six other local lobster fishermen have been asking the government for repairs to a broken-down seawall to protect their boats. I feel that the Liberal government does not understand how the people of rural Canada live. All right, they govern rural Canada like it's downtown Montreal, Toronto, and we live in a totally different world, all right? And they, they have failed to recognize this. So what are you getting here? I'm getting food for my <laughs> Good idea. The incumbent MP here is Bernadette Jordan. She won this riding by 18,000 votes in 2015 when the Trudeau wave turned every riding in Atlantic Canada liberal red. This January, she was named Minister of Rural Economic Development. And she's been taking a lot of heat from some of the region's fishermen over the crumbling infrastructure. But she defends the government's record. No, there needs to be more. Absolutely no question. Um, I mean, it was because of advocacy from Atlantic uh, Canadians that we ended up with $250 million more in the budget in 2018 to address the issue of, of small craft harbours, recognizing that most, uh, you know, I have I have probably the most small craft harbours in Nova Scotia in my riding. Uh, they all need work. There's, there's probably 70% of them need work. Um, we've managed to secure $30 million in funding for this area to increase the capacity at wharves, but there, there definitely needs to be more done. Welcome to Lunenburg. <laughs> nice to see you. Gonna have a fun day. Rick Perkins is running for the Conservatives in South Shore St. Margaret's. He's a financial consultant and a former head of the Nova Scotia Liquor Corporation. He's hoping to win this riding back for the Tories. This riding has been Tory blue for 57 of the last 65 years. One of Perkins' biggest issues is the crumbling fishing infrastructure, which he blames on Liberal governments. Yeah, it happened during the Cretchen government. They devolved a lot of the wars, mostly to municipalities and to some non-for-profit groups, uh, at a time where the federal government knew they required a lot of capital upgrades, but they devolved them anyway, and municipalities took them over. And most of these small municipalities don't have the financial resources to maintain the capital budgets. The federal government only has a $75 million a year budget for all of Canada's uh, wars through small craft harbors, so it's totally inadequate for maintaining this infrastructure. It's, it's our Trans-Canada Highway for our fishery and a lot of our wharfs are in jeopardy. How important is the lobster fishery here? The lobster fishery is enormous. It's our number one uh, uh, species that we catch. This, this riding is one of the richest fishing grounds in the entire world, let alone Canada. 
represents a massive amount of the value of the Canadian fishery. So there are 800 lobster fishermen alone, lob licensed lobster fishermen, plus their, their crews on our, uh, in my area in this riding. Plus we have shrimp, scallops, swordfish, uh, surf clams, clams, you name it, we fish it here. And it's, uh, so there are thousands and thousands of jobs and then the spin-off jobs from that dependent on this fishery here. Well, the other thing that people are missing here or that people are getting upset about is the amount of money that's been dropped over the Local last. journalist Ed Halverson has been watching the dynamics in this riding. What's the biggest challenge for the Liberals in South Shore, St. Margaret's? You know, I've followed this pretty closely over the last four years. And yes, there's a, there's a lot of funding that's been promised. People aren't seeing enough on the ground yet. Yes, we've seen promises but we need to see action now. And I think that's going to be uh, Bernadette Jordan's biggest challenge at this point is to try and show that, yeah, it's coming, we've made our promises, and here's the timeline. I think that's what people want to see. In the riding's largest town, Bridgewater, there's another big irritant. It's the saga of a former Navy vessel, the Cormorant. It was towed almost 20 years ago to a shipyard in Bridgewater to be repaired, but then it was abandoned by its private owner and left to rust, deteriorate, and even leak into the local river. Bernadette Jordan says she has helped finally find a solution to the problem. The Cormorant has been there, first of all, for 18 years. Yeah. And um, I am the first person who has actually taken on trying to get rid of the darn thing. And, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that we now have legislation that stops it from happening again. We have had, uh, at one time, you know, it's not illegal to dump those ships. That's what shocked me when I was first elected, is that without, uh, the only way you could um, actually be involved in the removal of a ship, the government, is if it was an environmental hazard or a navigational hazard. And it didn't meet either of those criteria. So we had no legal recourse to go in and deal with the ship. We now have a law that was actually just passed uh, this past year to uh, make it illegal to have that. Another major problem in the riding is the lack of fast, efficient internet. A majority of people in rural areas here still don't have access to high-speed internet service. We know that infrastructure, that, that critical piece of infrastructure, that high-speed internet that has to be affordable as well as cell phone coverage is something that, you know, we have to develop. It's not just in, in this riding, but right across the country in rural, rural communities. Um, you know, as the, as the Minister for Rural, it's been actually part of the biggest piece of my mandate, is how do we actually connect communities to affordable high-speed internet? We've set ambitious targets to make sure 100% of Canadians are covered, are, are looked after. Uh, you know, we've started with the uh, Connect to Innovate program, which is connecting 900 communities across the country. A big chunk of that money is, a lot of money is coming to this riding. Infrastructure, internet infrastructure, like any infrastructure, takes time to build. It's not something that you just flip a switch and the next day they have internet. Uh, so, you know, I mean, we announced some funding last year. That, that funding is now rolled out. The infrastructure is being built and, you know, hopefully within the next few months you'll see a lot more people connected. Tina Henniger in Mahone Bay says the government is nowhere near connecting rural Nova Scotians. She's leading a local initiative, but one which will require changes from the government. Let community groups try to see if we can solve this issue because we know the alternative is not working. Uh, so right now we're not even allowed in the game. We're not allowed to apply for the money. Right now, the money that's out there, um, it's only accessible to large telcos and municipalities. Municipalities don't want to play in this space. Telcos have already received millions of dollars and have failed. So why not allow us to small community groups to do it? At this point, for many in the riding, the debate isn't over the need for better infrastructure. It's more about where that infrastructure money should be best spent. I'm Vincent Bootlier. I'm a lobster fisherman. Uh, I represent uh, fishermen on advisory board. 
and it's absolutely critical that we get some infrastructure dollars for our uh, wharves and harbors in Nova Scotia. My name is Tina Henniger and I'm the coordinator of Now Lunenburg County and we believe that the government should invest in better access to internet for all. The lobster fishery for Atlantic Canada, and we're dealing with Nova Scotia mm -hmm. here today, uh, is absolutely critical. There's tens of thousands of direct jobs linked to the industry. Uh, Premier McNeil stated the other year that the books were bound there was a small surplus and he mentioned the strength of the fishery. Uh, so it's a renewable resource that keeps on giving uh, to the local economy and the national economy and our infrastructure, our wharves and harbors are in some sorry states and it's extremely important uh, that they be kept that be kept up if we had we have so much going for us as a province mm -hmm. as a community if we had adequate internet access affordable reliable um, I mean we could change the game in our province and we you know it could bring um, investment it could bring more jobs it could bring more young people yep. to our province and more people in our province as taxpayers spending uh, buying groceries having their kids in our school paying taxes um, using services and buying uh, homes all of those things will help increase our tax base so that we can invest more heavily into wharves into roads um, but we don't think that we really should have to choose one or the other or we or having one is enough you know why can't we have uh, good wharves and, and repair our roads and all of those things as well as um, have internet that's comparable to the rest of the country. Federal government is a long ways away from Lunar County. We live entirely different than Montreal and Toronto. Okay? Uh, entirely different. They the, uh, uh, the MPs seem to be not able to convey the importance, okay, of rural Nova mm -hmm. Scotia, okay, and the true significance impact, favorable impact they can make by investing in the infrastructure here. They're preoccupied with stuff that really doesn't mean much mm. to the people of rural Nova Scotia. I feel like in our group we have a committee of really smart, talented people who live in Lunenburg County yeah. who have expertise in this area in creating um, broadband and bringing yeah. um, adequate internet to their communities. They do it all over the world and we have them living here in Lunenburg County so we're very lucky. Um, it's possible. We've seen it in other parts of the world. Uh, it's possible that um, these rural parts of the country can have adequate access to internet. Um, what we think has failed, and it's con we've seen it, it's been tried and tested and it's failed a number of times, is continuing to invest in traditional telcos, the ISPs, these large um, internet service providers who are continually given millions and they have failed us. So what we're suggesting is 
we need our federal government to allow communities, community groups like ours in the game. Allow us to the opportunity to, to uh, provide internet to our communities, making sure that we're uh, future-proofing our communities so that we can have access long into the future. I just believe that if we had, uh, if these telcos could do it, with millions of federal dollars, of our taxpaying dollars, then they would have done it by now. Uh, just giving them more money is not going to really change anything. And so if we're going to be innovative, if we have an innovation minister in our riding, let's be innovative. And giving money to ISPs, is there's nothing entirely innovative about that notion. Some people debate whether you should be investing in wars and the, the traditional economy or whether you should be investing in high, high tech. Well, I don't think it's an either or. I think it's both, right? We have a, we actually have a lot of high tech uh, in this riding and in this town. This is one of the oldest towns in Canada. Uh, it's a UNESCO heritage site, and we have these traditional industries like the fishery. But just over our shoulder on this side is Stelia, which makes parts for the F-35 aircraft and is owned by uh, Airbus out of France. We have HB Studios here, which is one of the global leaders in and making video games that many of your viewers may use. So we have a mix of both, and I think we can do both. She's a Jessica. Hi, Daryl. so good to see you. Can I give you one of these? Jessica Hepburn is running for the NDP in South Shore, St. Margaret's. The NDP finished third in this riding in 2015 with 17% of the vote. Hepburn is the owner of a coffee shop and a bakery in Mahone Bay, and she's the founder of the Maritimes' largest sales collective for local artisans. We've heard a lot about local infrastructure and economic development from the other parties, so where does the NDP fit in? Where does the NDP fit in? Well, I think it is misleading to Canadians to have a minister without a department, without a budget, without a staffing. Uh, and I know that we do have a minister of rural economic development, but I am rural economic development. I'm a small business owner, and I'm also the founder of the Maritime Makers Organization. So I've been a leader in the maker movement, the focus of relocalizing prosperity, relocalizing the tools of production in the hands of people for over a decade. So that idea of building a regional strong economy that is loca building local economies across the country and across the riding is work that I have been doing without a paycheck for a very long time. The more we get together, 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 the more we work together, the better life will be. I think the other thing that we're not talking about is when we're looking at polls, really 41% of people are not voting or more depending on the riding. I really want to talk to them and that's why we have this community groups, like in community support. So I think that the polls can tell you one thing, but we are people first and that is the thing about the South Shore is that we are good neighbors and all I have gotten from people is not about party, not about what flag they're on, but thank you young person who cares for running. And that's what I'm really hoping to inspire and move the conversation forward. Like, I want to win. Absolutely, but I'm going to keep doing this work whether or not I win or lose. This is this is what our community does. Our health care. So what are the people in this riding saying about some of their priorities okay, for this election? The, uh, I live 10 minutes outside of town and I still am unable to get uh, the internet unless I get it. I shouldn't say ExploreNet or something on uh, lower. I guess ExploreNet, they're going to spend a bunch of money and hopefully improve it. Hopefully I'll have uh, the internet well, when I get laid off, I'm a seasonal worker, so I'll work on that this winter because I really am missing out on uh, all the information. I guess part of the reason we live in Mahone Bay is because there's good internet. I'm a, I'm a translator uh, 
and interpreter and the translation stuff all all comes in through internet essentially yeah it all comes in through internet don't have internet you don't i don't you don't work so yeah I, for the r more r rural areas i know people who have a hard go um and pay sometimes pretty high sums to uh, have that happen so um it, i mean i'm fine but it's because i chose to set up in town but for those who don't set, set up in town they've got a hard go of it i have three little grandchildren growing up in this rural area and I am just deeply concerned about what's going on in this environment. And I just think um, that it's not enough to say, oh, we'll have a new, uh, a green new deal. I think it's almost a duplication of business as usual. And I think we're in severe uh, climate emergency and people are just not paying attention. It's healthcare. You know, you see it, you live it every day. Uh, in the hospitals over down here, mm -hmm. you know, it's such a big weight. It's, and the homes, in homes, the seniors, and like they're waiting and waiting to get into, you know, a home. They want to stay in their own home, but they can't afford, you know, to. For me personally, I think environment is uh, takes the precedence right now, and uh, beyond that, I, I really think there's a lot of difference in the. Uh, well, m more class kind of like that the rich aren't really being taxed uh, appropriately. And I, I'd, I'd really like to see those two things be amended. I think for us as a family, the biggest issue is climate change and how our communities prepare for that. Uh, are the parties addressing that, do you think? Um, I think right now the Liberals seem to have a bit of a plan with the carbon taxes and stuff to address it long term. but. Uh, I think that some of the smaller communities need to hop on it as well because coastal communities like Mahone Bay are going to experience it first. You, because there is such a big riding. Yes, yes, yeah. indeed. With climate change registering more than ever before as an issue and a concern for voters, that leaves the leader of the Nova Scotia Green Party optimistic. Thomas Trappenberg has run several times both provincially and federally. This time around, he's running federally in the South Shore, St. Margaret's. I see how many people are now aware of it and actually are saying, you know, just pendling between the, the, the old. So we have so much increase in support, it's, it's really wonderful to see. Um, also, the people are aware and what's fun to, to explain to them how it is related to our economic circumstances. You know that uh, the way we have to change our economy goes very well in line with uh, you know, preserving our, our assets we have here. You know, we have these beautiful oceans here, we have uh, forests, which actually we are, we are treating really badly. And I think people starting to see that we are burning our, our uh, you know, bread and butter, and that actually thinking about this, how we do this differently, is actually quite important for them. The Conservatives point out that this riding has been Conservative for 50-something odd years out of 60-odd years. Uh, only voted Liberal twice in the last 20 years. Um, how big do you think tradition is uh, against Bernadette Jordan? Is she just there renting her, her uh, position? Or might things be, or might we be in a different era? I mean, I think you've touched on it. Well, there's, there's been a lot of, you know, I vote for who my father voted for, who his father voted for around this area a lot. But there's also you know, depending on where you're at, there's, there are many communities where the same family names have been there for seven, eight, ten generations. So, yeah, she's going to fight that fight. Uh, I personally believe probably what she came in on was that red tide that, that swept through across, across the entire province, gave them all 32 seats in Atlanta, Canada last time. Uh, it's going to, going to be just going to be, does she resonate? 
you know, has she done enough, you know, to, to affirm her seat? I think the fact that uh, she was appointed a minister will likely help, you know. Uh, but again, some people look at that and go, great, because of her ministerial duties, uh, her prestige, there's been some funding that's come to, the pro to this area. Mm -hmm. But there are also other people looking at it and saying, well, she's spending less time now in, in, the, in the riding. I never get to see her. What is she actually doing? I don't know. I think it... Uh, I think that's going to be more of her challenge than it will be, you know, who my father voted for. With the race heating up and the issues of economic development and infrastructure central to the campaign in this riding, how are the two leading candidates feeling about their chances? I've been told that people don't, don't know Andrew Shear down here. Well, I think they do and they'll get to know him a little more. That's part of the lot of, I guess, a leader of the opposition. It's hard to get your profile raised until you're actually in an election campaign. Uh, and I, I think Andrew is showing strong leadership. He did uh, recently in the, in the debates that we've seen. And in terms of local ridings, you know, candidates matter. And in ridings like this, well, we have won it for most of the last 62 years. We win it by small margins, it's true. So the candidate and the campaigns make a difference at the local level in determining that 10% difference. I never stopped knocking on doors. My, my, uh, the last four years I've knocked on doors. And, and you've had town halls. And I've had many town halls um, and lots of stakeholder meetings, lots of engagement. And I think that, uh, you know, that, that people have seen definitely a change in the way things are done here. I think that they've seen progress in this area. I think that there's always more that can be done. Um, the day that we don't have anything to do, when is that? What government has ever said, yeah, we're done? Um, and, I, and we have an ambitious agenda. And, you know, I think we delivered on a, on a lot of key areas and a lot of key priorities, not just in this riding, but right across the country. So, I'm, you know, I mean, I, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I am very hopeful that uh, people will see the good work that I've done, the record that I can stand on, the good work that our government has done, and, and uh, that'll show in the polls on October 21st. In the riding of South Shore St. Margaret's, Nova Scotia, I'm Martin Stringer.